Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 1. Zechariah chapter 1. I had grand intentions of covering more ground this morning all the way through chapter 2. But I'm not that skilled. Dan Harris told me that in Sunday school next door they went through the Old Testament. The entire Old Testament like like five times. Is Dan in here? Where are you, Dan? Five, three times, three times, five times. Yeah, you're much more skilled than I am, brother. I never, never would I manage that. I think I told you all at the beginning of the series that it would take approximately 20 weeks. We're not going to do that. We're not going to make the 20-week mark. So our text this morning is verse 7 through 17 in chapter 1. As you're turning, as you're turning there, let's stand together and we'll read this glorious passage. I trust that you're okay with milking a little bit more out of each passage than covering more territory each week. Let's just understand that these visions that we're looking at, they're intended to go together. And so we'll make some effort each week to remind ourselves of that. Zechariah 1, beginning in verse 7. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, How long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you've been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease, For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I've returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for gracious and comforting words in the Word of God. We thank you that they meet us here this morning, and we pray for your help, your Spirit's help to understand them and to apply them to our minds and hearts this morning. And we ask for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. I want to begin this morning by reading to you from the first four verses of Psalm 13. 
Psalm 13, verses 1 through 4. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. Those words from Psalm 13 are are common words of the people of God, not only in the Word of God, but throughout history as God has called us to do difficult things and yet we find ourselves beset with trouble in the midst of that work. As disciples, we're called to build the house of God, which is what this series is about, building the house of God that is spreading the gospel to the lost that they might be saved and ministering the gospel to the saved that they might grow in Christ's likeness. And it is a glorious task that's been afforded to us, the redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And yet, this glorious task, building the house of God, it doesn't take place in the absence of trouble. In fact, it actually brings trouble upon us. Jesus warned us about this. There's opposition all the time. An enemy doing everything possible to either stop the work, and if he can't stop the work, then to do whatever he can do to make the work miserable and painful. And the opposition that we face can take any number of forms. It can be straightforward persecution. And we're seeing that not only all over the world, but we're seeing it more and more in our own nation. That opposition could also be just the, just the normal trials of life that tend to get in the way of our life's mission. We know as believers and and those called to be disciples of Jesus, we know our life's mission is to build the kingdom. Yet many of us have very real troubles right now. We we may have a child who is rebelling. Or we have a a transition at work that's requiring very much of our time and, and mental faculties. Or we have a parent with a terminal illness. Or we've we've just been hit with a crippling financial setback. Of course, we know cognitively that all of these things are under God's sovereign control, but the Bible would also teach us that there is an enemy. There's an enemy, the devil, and in concert with the world and even our own flesh, that enemy would love to take those trials and use them to turn our attention away from the mission that we've been given. We're beset with trouble on every side. And we want to do what the Lord's called us to do. We want to build the house. But it seems that trouble always gets in the way. And in the midst of that, at times, it can feel as if the Lord himself is even distant from us. Much like Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? You've called me to build the church. And yet, all of this trouble... It even reminds me of Paul and his ministry companions in 2 Corinthians 1 where Paul tells about how they were so burdened beyond their own strength that they almost despaired of life itself, feeling as if they had received the sentence of death. Paul commented at the end of that same book, 2 Corinthians, about that thorn in the flesh that troubled him so deeply that he begged the Lord to remove it. 
How long, O Lord? These, these are words not confined to the scriptures, but they come to each one of us at some time in our lives as we're trying to do the work of God and yet trouble besets us. Zechariah's prophecy is designed to bring encouragement to us in that situation. It's encouraged to, to move us to continue the work in the middle of such opposition. And Zechariah does that by putting in front of us kingdom promises and kingdom pictures, and he says to us, cling to these. His message is essentially, look to Jesus. And by use of these vivid pictures or visions, he, he, he encourages this. And we've just read the first vision. The, the main point of which is that God is jealous for his people. The Lord is jealous for his people. And we can, we can derive that idea explicitly from verse 14, which reads, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. But the rest of the vision bears out that same message. We, we tend to regard jealousy as a negative thing, but God's jealousy is a, is a good thing. In fact, in the last chapter of the Song of Songs, God's jealousy is made synonymous with His love. The nature of God's love is that it is a jealous love. He, he wants His people for Himself. He doesn't want their affections to go to anyone else, and he is willing to fight to retain them. And what good news that is to people who feel as if God is distant from them. God is not distant from us in the midst of these troubles, but he desperately wants us. And this vision is going to teach us not only that, not only that God wants us, but that he will go to great lengths to give, us, give himself to us. What a relief that can be when we feel as if he is far away doesn't notice what we're enduring. So let's begin to walk through this together. We're going to read a larger chunk again here at the beginning, verses 7 through 11. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse, he was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, what are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, these are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, we have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Now, let me say at the beginning here, and I'll, I'll probably remind you week by week, contrary to popular belief, the visions of the Bible are not intended to be obscure, but understandable. Otherwise, they don't accomplish their intended effect, which is to encourage God's people. And we'll find a general pattern in the visions of Zechariah that he will see something, then he will ask a question about what he sees, that question will be answered, and then that answer will be expounded upon. What that means is these visions are self-interpreting. And we may be tempted to make something significant of every tiny detail. I'm going to suggest that that would be a mistake. Zechariah will ask the important questions for us. We need only pay attention to the answers he receives and to how those answers are expounded upon. 
So let me summarize for you this vision again in a nutshell, all right? Zechariah, he sees a man riding on a red horse who we will see turns out to be the angel of the Lord. So he's on a horse among other horses who have patrolled the earth and they have found that the nations of the earth are at rest. And upon hearing that, the angel of the Lord then turns to the Lord and prays, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy upon Jerusalem? The Lord hears that prayer and answers with comforting words. The angel of the Lord hears those comforting words from Yahweh and then turns and delivers those comforting words to Zechariah and therefore to us. And the great point of this passage is the content of those comforting words. Some of us may want to make much of the smaller details in the vision. We may want to know For instance, what's the significance of the colors of these horses? I would suggest to you that if there were something significant about the colors of the horses, Zechariah would ask about the colors of the horses, and he would receive an answer about the colors of the horses, but that doesn't happen. We need to pay attention to the dialogue. The dialogue will tell us what is significant. He simply asks, Zechariah simply asks, what are these And the angel, that is the man standing among the myrtle trees, reveals that these horses are those that the Lord has sent out to patrol the earth. Look at verse 11 again. And they, this this patrol, they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, we've patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Now sending out a patrol is something that a sovereign king does. They, They send out men on horseback to see what's the condition of their realm. Is everything at peace? Or is there trouble on the horizon? And that the Lord has done this indicates, A, that He is in control. He's a sovereign king. And B, it indicates He sees what's going on. Now this is, this is a subtle point, but it's worth noting, and that's why I've put it in your notes. And that is that the Lord sees us in our suffering. The Lord sees us in our suffering. We know because of what the Bible teaches about the character of God. Character of God, another, another word that, that Peter uses for the attributes of God, the excellencies of God. We know that God is omniscient. He doesn't need a patrol to go out throughout the earth to see what's going on. This is for our benefit. This is a vision that depicts something happening so that we'll know that God knows. So we can picture this happening. This is a way of, of showing God is keeping an eye on what's going on with His people. And specifically, He sees two things. First of all, He sees the suffering of His people. And we know this because of what the angel prays in response to, the, to, to what He hears from the patrol. We see this in verse 12. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you've been angry these 70 years? See, though the, though the people have been brought back from exile... It is as if they are still in exile because they are still under the power of the Persians. God's people are suffering. The nations around them are doing well. God sees them in their suffering though. And he he always has. When we studied Exodus together a couple of years ago, we saw God seeing his people in their suffering. When we studied Judges 10 years ago, we saw God seeing his people in their suffering. We find the same kind of thing in the book of Revelation. God sees His people suffering. God, they, they, they never suffer outside of God's awareness. And what the Bible would have us to know about this is not, is not just that God sees this. 
He, when God sees it, he does not observe dispassionately, but he's moved to mercy in action, which we'll see shortly. He sees the suffering of his people. Secondly, he sees the rest of her persecutors. And this is precisely what was reported to the angel in verse 11. Verse 11 says, We patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. The following verses are going to indicate to us that this means that the nations are at rest at the expense of God's people. And in a later vision, God is going to say to Zechariah about these nations, Those who touch you touch the apple of the Lord's eye. Which would say to us that just as God does not observe the suffering of his people dispassionately, so also he does not, he does not observe dispassionately those who persecute his people. But rather he regards them with anger. It is, is it not comforting to know that when we suffer while doing the work of the Lord, that does not go unnoticed by him. He sees it. You remember how that very, that very thing comforted Hagar in Genesis 16, 13. Do you remember this? Those of you who are familiar with this passage, Hagar was so comforted by just being seen by the Lord that she named him the God who sees and said, have I actually seen the one who sees me? Just knowing that he sees us is a relief. But there's far more comfort to be found here. That's a subtle point in this text. The Lord also intercedes for us in our suffering. The Lord intercedes for us in our suffering. Let's look at verse 12 again. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you've been angry these 70 years? Now, obviously, the text says that the angel of the Lord is praying to the Lord of hosts on behalf of the people here. So why would I say the Lord intercedes for us in our suffering? Well, it's possible that I'm overzealous in my desire to see Christ in the Old Testament. But if I am, I'm in good company, okay, because... The, the, the majority position of the early church fathers and the reformers was to understand that the angel of the Lord, wherever he is found in the Old Testament, is a pre-incarnate manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I personally don't want to believe something just because giants of church history believe it. I find it comforting when they tell me I'm right about the Bible, but I want to believe things because the Bible says so. So why would I believe it? In light of that, what does the Bible say that would lead me to believe that the angel of the Lord is actually a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus? Well, let's go to Genesis 16, which I've just referenced a moment ago regarding Hagar. Genesis 16. There's general agreement that the angel of the Lord, this is not just a generic reference to any old angel that could apply to any, any angel, But it is something more like a title that refers to one specific angel. And Genesis 16 is the first appearance of that angel in all of the Bible. You may or may not be familiar with the context of Genesis 16, so let me give it to you very quickly. Abram and Sarai have been told by God that God is going to bless them with a son. They become impatient because because Sarai is barren. 
They don't, they don't trust God. And so they come up with their own plan where, wherein Abram is going to go into Sarai's handmaiden, Hagar. He does that. She becomes pregnant, gives birth to a son. And when that happens, Sarai all of a sudden is no longer a fan of that plan. And she despises that son and she despises Hagar and treats her harshly so that Hagar flees distraught. So we'll begin reading in verse 7, Genesis 16, 7. Pay close attention as we read who speaks in this passage. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand, shall, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Who spoke to Hagar? Everything said to her in this passage is attributed to the angel of the Lord. And she identifies the one who spoke to her here as Yahweh. The same thing happens in Genesis 18 as the Lord interacts with Abraham. There's an angel speaking in the first person as Yahweh. There's something similar in Joshua 5. We find it actually happening over and over in the Old Testament. In fact, every time that we find the angel of the Lord speaking in the Old Testament, he speaks in the first person for Yahweh. But perhaps the best indication that the angel of the Lord is not simply a normal angel as evidence found right here in Zechariah. So let's go back to Zechariah chapter 2. I don't have time to walk through all of, of chapter 2. There are numerous instances in chapter 2 that would tell us this is not a normal angel. But we'll look at just one. Zechariah 2.11. In Zechariah 2.11, just like in chapter 1, this is an angel talking to Zechariah. Zechariah 2.11. And many, and many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. That's it's crucial to pay close attention to the pronouns and the point of view of the speaker here. All right. Again, the angel of the Lord is speaking for the Lord in the first person. But look again at that first sentence. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. They shall be my people. First person. Look again at the second sentence. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. So think, think about those pronouns again, all right? Who's been referred to? Who, who is the, the I and the me here? And I, the Lord, will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me, the Lord, to you. The Lord has sent me, the Lord. The, the angel speaks as the Lord in the first person and speaks about the Lord in the third person in the same sentence. How are we to make sense of this? 
Well, it's clear that the Lord is sending the Lord. If we have a Trinitarian understanding of Yahweh and we allow the New Testament to help us understand these things, it is no stretch at all to understand that the Father is sending the Son. It also is no stretch in my mind to understand that the angel of the Lord here is not merely speaking on behalf of the Lord, but he is a pre-incarnate manifestation of the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus. Even if we are not prepared to say that, even if we still want to say the angel of the Lord is just the mouthpiece of Yahweh, he at least pictures Christ here in the work that he is doing as he intercedes for the people. I'll say that again. Even if this is not a pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ, this angel at least pictures Christ as he does the work of interceding on behalf of the people. Look at verse 12 again. The angel prays, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you've been angry these 70 years? O Lord of hosts, how long? This angel is bringing to the Lord the prayer of the people of the Lord prayed many, many times over the course of their history. Listen, if you were to walk through Psalms this afternoon, you would find those words over and over. You'd find them in the prophets. You'll find them in Revelation 6.10. Over and over, God's people say, How long, O Lord? The angel of the Lord is lifting a common prayer to Yahweh on behalf of the people. This is precisely what the New Testament teaches that Jesus does at the right hand of the Father. Romans 8.34 says that Christ is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. Hebrews 7.25, He always lives to make intercession for us. When you need prayer, I wonder who you ask to pray for you. I've got three people, three people that I call just immediately, when, when, I, when I'm in desperate right now need of prayer warriors, I talk to my wife and I call my parents and I know that they're going to wring themselves out right then for me. Oh, how encouraging that is to know that when I ask for it right then, I'm being prayed for and how encouraging it is to know I'm being prayed for people who have prayed for me well in the past with excellent results. So think about What's happening in this text? To the original hearer who doesn't have a, a broad salvation historical understanding of the import of these things, just to think that the angel of the Lord is praying on their behalf must have been greatly encouraging. God not only sees us, but the great angel of the Lord pleads our case. How much more encouraged should we be to know that the eternal Son brings our needs before the Father? He pleads His blood for us. Pleads for the strengthening of our faith. Pleads that we would remain strong and continue on. Can you think about this, brothers and sisters? That the Lord Jesus has mentioned your name before Yahweh the Father. And what are the odds that the Father turns a deaf ear to the prayers of the Son? Verse 13 gives us an answer to that, which we'll get to in a moment. But think on this. The Lord Jesus intercedes for us in our suffering. 
So, 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 so return for just a minute to your situation. We're, if, if we're disciples of Jesus Christ, we care about doing the work of ministry. We care about building the house of God. And yet all of us, in some measure, have something going on right now that the enemy would use to turn us away from that work, to distract us from more important things. Jesus is not only aware of that, but is praying for you in the midst of it. Is that not encouraging? Hallelujah. There are even more encouraging things here. Third, the Lord comforts us in our suffering. Comforts us in our suffering. We've got an angel praying for us here. We've got a father answering that prayer. Look at verse 13. And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. Now, The first time I read this, I thought, oh, I would love to know what he said to that angel. But then I kept reading and I saw that the content of what the angel says is found in the following verses. Because the angel then turns around and delivers the message to Zechariah to give to the people. And we could, we could say that it's got two components to it, alright? First of all, he assures us of his gracious disposition. First of all, there's a gracious disposition in verses 14 and 15. Look at 14 and 15. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I'm exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I'm exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry, but a little, they furthered the disaster. When suffering under the load of kingdom work, it can feel as if the Lord is indifferent to us. And we, we may even tell ourselves at times when we're beset by different struggles. We, we may tell ourselves, I must have done something to displease the Lord. Here, the Lord reveals that in spite of how we have wronged Him in the past, because of the blood of Christ, He has forgiven us. And his disposition toward us is that of jealousy. He is jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. He wants us. Now some of us may have a problem with conceiving of ourselves as Jerusalem and Zion. But according to the apostles, the church composed of believing Jews and Gentiles is the true Jerusalem. There are not two peoples of God, Israel and the church. There are not two peoples of God. There's one people of God. Paul taught in Ephesians chapter 2 that the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, that was abolished in the body of Christ so that now there's one new man, one new man composed of Jew and Gentile with Christ as the head. Jesus, in that wonderful passage, John, John 10, about the, the good shepherd, he says of the Gentiles... He says, of the Gentiles to the Jews, he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock with one shepherd. Amen, Gentile believers? Amen. The true Jerusalem, the true Jerusalem, according to, to Hebrews 12, is a heavenly city. The kingdom of God which at this moment is represented in the earthly church. And God's disposition toward her, according to Zechariah, is one of jealousy. He desires to have his church to himself. And given all that Jesus has done for us at the Father's behest, we can say 
that the Father also desires us to have Him. His gracious disposition toward the church translates also into a disposition of anger toward those who persecute us. If you look at the text again, I'm exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. If we read those pre-exilic prophets from Isaiah on, God foretold that he would, he would use foreign nations to bring judgment upon his own people. But we find in places like Isaiah 10, that those foreign nations, while doing the will of God, they did not do so for the glory of God, but they did so for their own glory. And so their abuse of God's people has not gone unnoticed by Yahweh. He's exceedingly angry with these nations. He will bring the pain upon them. And the history records him doing that literally to the nations who have done this to, to Israel over the next several hundred years. And even as, even as this is being written, he's already judged Assyria, Babylon, he's going to judge Persia, Greece, Rome. Parallel application to the church today is that he's exceedingly angry with those who persecute his bride. The book of Revelation records that disposition. He is jealous for his people. He is angry with those who persecute her. Now, here's the thing about God. You and I can have, have a certain disposition that is a state of the heart that doesn't translate to action. God is not that way. This gracious disposition translates into gracious action. So he tells us here about his gracious plan in verses 16 and 17. What good news this is. Verse 16, Therefore thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy, and my house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem, Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, My city shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Now, we've heard this assurance before in Haggai over these previous few weeks. So that the house will be built. Prosperity will return. So again, the Holy Spirit is preaching encouragement to the people of God in stereo through Haggai and Zechariah. God will build His house, and He will bring prosperity back again makes me think of the passage that we studied a few months ago in 1 Peter 1. You have an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. But the prosperity that we desire is not an earthly Jerusalem, but a prosperity that is of eternal worth and proportion, that heavenly Jerusalem, which is the presence of Christ, the bride of Christ with the groom for all eternity. You know why these visions are so wonderful in Zechariah? They represent realities which we can't see, but which we're intended to picture. We're intended to picture these things. What can we see in this earth? Frequently, as we're doing this this glorious work that God's given us to do, all we can see is the things that are besetting us. The, The very real problems that come upon us and which the enemy would use to distract us from the good work. These visions come to us and they are intended for us to picture them, to picture them and to see here this gracious plan of God wherein Christ will eternally comfort and choose the church. And that is wonderful language, comfort and choose. He will comfort and choose. Makes me think of Revelation 21. Let's let's turn to Revelation 21. Comfort and choose. Those are twin themes of the prophets. 
And we find them again at the end of the scriptures. Isaiah majors on this idea of God comforting his people through the coming Messiah. Hosea majors on that idea of God choosing his people. First he removes his favor from them and then shows how gracious he is by choosing her again. Zechariah shows both here, comforting and choosing. Revelation gives us that ultimate eschatological fulfillment of these things on the last day. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Now what is the New Jerusalem? Okay, if, if just follow the language. The New Jerusalem is a people. It's the bride of Christ with her husband for all eternity. That is it's the church. And what kind of language does the Bible use about the church in the New Testament? This is the bride that the groom has chosen for himself. And he has chosen to spend eternity with her. Verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They'll be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore where the former things have passed away. Now what is being said there? That is comfort. It's the fulfillment of Isaiah saying, saying to the pre-incarnate Christ, comfort, comfort my people. Here we find it in spades for all eternity. Comfort, comfort my people. He will choose Jerusalem and he will comfort Zion for all eternity. Now, is that not helpful? To think that though, though we are buffeted now, we have that to look forward to forever. There is yet more encouragement to be found here. A, a little thing, but it's a huge thing. And it's the final point in your notes. The Lord is present with us in our suffering. He's present with us in our suffering. And for this, we want to look at the beginning of verse 16 again. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to to Jerusalem with mercy. I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. You know, much of this speaks of what God is going to do, what he's going to do. But here he speaks in the past tense, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. And Zechariah is, is being assured, God's already with his people. And because of that, in a sense, the rest of everything that's promised is in the bank. Now, we, we, we love the gospel here, and so we, we love to rehearse it together. Even the bad news. I like talking about the bad news of the gospel because it excites me to get to the good news separated from God because of our sin, we were hopelessly doomed for eternity under his wrath, his awesome, omnipotent wrath. But because of his great love with which he loved us, he sent his son, who is called in Matthew chapter 1, Emmanuel, God with us. Listen, God is so jealous for his people that he sent his son to be with us, to get us. 
So Jesus came to us. He lived among us. He obeyed the law of God perfectly for us. And he was delivered over to be crucified on our cross. And there God placed our sin and its guilt upon him. And there he suffered the wrath of God in our place and died. And three days later, he rose from the dead, proving that his death was sufficient to buy our life and to bring us back to the Father. God with us brought us back to God. You know, we've read the Bible, and we've, we've just read the very end of it. Revelation 21. We know that great consummation of all things, it takes place on the last day. We know that Acts chapter 1 depicts this God with us being ascended into heaven. And so now we await his return. Depicted in Revelation 21 and 22. Now, If, if Jesus had done all this for us, if he had died for us and reconciled us to God and then, and then left us until the second coming with the simple promise that one day we would enjoy his presence today again one day we would we would enjoy again god with us that would have been grace upon grace and of course it wouldn't have even occurred to any of us to complain about this but jesus before he even died to bring us back to god he said in john 14:18 i will not leave you as orphans i will come to you if we read that in context the very the very previous verse we know that he's talking about the spirit there i will not leave you as orphans he says in the previous verse of the spirit You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. See, when Jesus ascended into heaven, he did not leave us alone. Now, we do. We we await his return, the consummation of all things. But the helper, the very spirit of Jesus, he lives inside the redeemed. And therefore, we, we can read Zechariah 1.16 with all the greater relish and comfort. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. Spirit of Christ, God with us, is with us, even now, to the end of the age. Now, we all share a calling in common, and that is to build this wonderful house of God, the church. To spread the gospel to the lost, and to minister the gospel to the saved, And what a glorious calling that is. We share that in common. What we don't have in common this morning is the specific troubles that are besetting us. There are things in your life right now that the enemy would use to distract you from from the work. And those things are legitimate and some of them are extremely painful. In the midst of those things, God has graciously given us a common message, which is this vision and Zechariah holds, us, holds them out to us to say, in the midst of this opposition to my work, look to Jesus and keep building because he sees you and he intercedes for you. He comforts you. He is present with you. He is jealous for his bride. I'm going to pray in a moment, and and after that we'll we'll share a, a few moments of silent reflection before we pray a final song.
Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for a magnificent gospel and the truths contained in it, the reality of it, that you've saved us from our sins and given us the wonderful privilege of participating with you in spreading the knowledge of yourself throughout the world. Thank you, Lord, that you allow us to be the hands and feet and mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ as he as he saves other sinners and as he grows other believers into his likeness. And yet we all know by experience that difficulty abounds in the life of the believer that would knock us off of the trajectory of participating with Jesus in that work. Lord, please take this message, take this vision of Zechariah, and work this deeply into our minds and hearts that it might have its intended effect that we would be encouraged by the love of Jesus. That He sees us, He intercedes for us, He is comforting us, He is with us in the midst of these things. And we do not work alone. We work in His power. And we pray, Father, that by the love of Christ that the Spirit works in us, we would be zealous to do the work of a Christ who is jealous for us. We pray these things in His name.